Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, your love. God, I thank you for an opportunity that we have now to look to your word, and I pray that you'd be with us, that you'd encourage us, that you'd bless us, that you'd knit our hearts together, God, that we would be, that we would be eager to hear the truth, to, to apply the truth to our lives, and to leave here living out the truth. God, help us to not only be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. God, I thank you for this season and all that it means to us, and I just pray and ask that you would just work mightily in our hearts, that you'd stir our affections for you, and God, help us to love you more. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're going to take a kind of a sidestep away from 2 Corinthians for a couple of weeks. Today we're going to be looking at Mark 11, verses 1 through 10, and in a way it's really a sermon within a sermon. Um, I, I said to the worship team, I said, don't worry, this week's going to be short. I know we've got baptisms going on and we've got a lot of things happening and don't worry, the message will be brief. But as is typically the case, I sat down to type and my fingers got carried away and my mind got carried away and there's lots of words, lots of information we have to cover. My mind's still a little foggy even as I address this text because there's so much there that I'm not even sure everything, how much we're going to uh, skip over and how much will end up on the cutting, the cutting room floor, so to speak. But there's a lot of information packed into Mark 11. And I call it a sermon within a sermon because while this is our text that we're looking at today, we're really going to be looking at Psalm 118 as well. Because Mark 11 is an allusion to, a reference to Psalm 118. And throughout the Holy Week, you'll see Psalm 118 come up again and again and again. So, uh, We're going to talk about what it means to celebrate Palm Sunday and what Holy Week is. But before we do that, let's look at our text this morning. Mark 11, verses 1 through 10. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he said to He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who who went in front of them and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So this Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday, is often referred to as Palm Sunday. And we wouldn't necessarily get that from this text we just read. We get that from John 12 where we read that the branches that the crowd spread on the road as Jesus was entering Jerusalem, those branches were palm branches. And this Sunday, as I mentioned, marks the beginning of what is typically referred to as Holy Week, a time where we specifically remember the events leading up to the death, the burial, and the resurrection 
of Jesus. And I got to say, I love this time of year. I just really love uh, Easter celebrations. I love the sunrise service. I love Maundy Thursday, an opportunity for us to come together as a church body and to celebrate communion as a family and to remember Jesus and His, His meal with His disciples when He was about to be betrayed and when He was about to die. And His commandment that He gave to His disciples to love one another. He said, I'm leaving here. Love one another is what He told them. And I love this time of year. I love that we get to celebrate those significant events. However, the death, burial, and resurrection, I must say, are not something that we should reserve for an annual remembrance. Instead, those events should be at the core of what we do and what we remember every single Sunday. You see, the Gospel should be the main thing week in and week out. That we never depart from the Gospel. It's like, oh yeah, we remember the Gospel. Jesus, He died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. And that those who confess faith in Christ, who trust Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they'll spend eternity with Him. It's not like we confess that and then we move on and we start talking about other things. Everything in the Scripture is rooted in that truth. We don't preach a moralism whereby we say you need to come here and you need to get your act together. You need to live your life right. You need to give money to the church. You need to be faithful to your spouse. You need to have a good work ethic. Those things don't come unless they are rooted in the Gospel. They have to be rooted in what Jesus Christ has done for you. He is the one who strengthens us, who sustains us, who enables us to live lives that are worthy of the Gospel. It's only through His grace. See, it's not that we are somehow good enough to earn His grace. It is that His grace is sufficient and it makes us like Him. So the Gospel is the main thing, whether it's Palm Sunday or Easter Sunday or any other Sunday. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, and he said, "...for I delivered to you as of first importance..." What I received also, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The the Scripture speaks plainly to the fact that Christ died and that it was promised long beforehand. The Scriptures promised. The Old Testament said there's coming a Messiah, one who will die for the sins of God's people. So Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, just as promised. And that He was buried, proof that He died, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And the Scriptures promised that He would be raised to newness of life. And then He appeared to Peter and to the Twelve and to many others, again proving that He was indeed raised. So the Gospel is of first importance. And I pray that it's at the center of all that we say and do each week. That being said, I find it helpful to specifically remember the events of Holy Week. Not because God is somehow closer to us this time of year. Not because March and April are somehow a time when God reaches down into our lives and is closer than He is in August. But instead, it's important to remember that God came down into human history. That the events that took place during this week that we remember were a true week and they were true events where God became a man and He stepped down into human history and lived out these events. And as a means of remembering that, we remember the grace that He's shown us. 
So as we look at our text this morning, I want you to see the significance of the events of this day, Jesus coming into the city, and how he's declaring himself to be the Messiah, the promised descendant of David who would bring deliverance to God's people. In order to understand that, I just want to give you a brief background. There's a lot here, but I want you to understand a little bit of background. The Jewish people were living under Roman rule. And they had a lot of freedom. They had some freedom to express their religion. They had freedom within their personal lives. But they weren't completely free. They couldn't choose their own king and run their own country the way they wanted to. They, couldn't, they didn't have a descendant of David sitting on the throne. And the land that God gave them was ultimately controlled by foreigners. And they longed to see that nation restored. They longed to see this king, a king, a descendant of David, who would reign and rule over them. They longed to see the end of Roman oppression. And they asked the question, they asked constantly, who was this descendant of David? And when would he come? And the Jewish people understood that the Scriptures spoke over and over again of a coming Messiah who would reign and rule in righteousness and rescue them once and for all. They understood Scriptures like Isaiah 11. Listen to Isaiah 11, verses 1-5, through which says this, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, that is a descendant of David. A A shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse. There will be a descendant of David, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And He will delight in the fear of the Lord. And He will not judge by what He sees, nor make a decision by what His ears hear. But with righteousness He will judge the poor. And decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth. And with the breath of His lips He will slay the wicked. Also the righteous, righteousness will be the belt about His loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. You see, they read Isaiah. They understood the prophet Isaiah. And they understood there's coming this king, one who's going to reign and rule in righteousness. And this oppression that we face will, won't exist anymore. It'll be over. So the expectation for the Messiah, the coming king, was high as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. The Jews wanted freedom from Rome. And Jesus... If you know the backstory to this, if you read the Gospel of John, had recently raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He waits a little while. He goes and visits Lazarus just before coming into Jerusalem. And it causes many people to come after Him, to start to follow Jesus. And there's a crowd that's beginning to follow Jesus. And then on the way to Jerusalem, He heals a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And Jesus is bold. And in proclaiming who He is and letting the world begin to see who He truly is. Because He knows the time has come to reveal to the world His identity. And the expectation is high. Jesus is beginning to show the world who He is. And in addition, it's the time for the annual celebration of the Passover feast. That Jesus was in Jerusalem because the Old Testament commanded that every male come to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover feast. Feast, a time when the Jews remembered God's deliverance of them from the bondage and captivity that they faced in Egypt. You see, the Jews were taken to Egypt. They were held as slaves in captivity. And God delivered them. He rescued them through His faithful hand and the servant Moses. If you remember from Exodus, He he rescued them. 
And God said, in light of this, I want you to every year remember the Passover. And by the way, there are some churches who say, you know, we shouldn't celebrate Easter. We don't need to celebrate Easter or Palm Sunday. The church calendar, these things, they're, they're holidays made up by men and we don't see any command in Scripture to do them. Well, that is true. Scripture doesn't say we need to remember Easter Sunday every year and it has to be a certain time. But instead, it's a means by which we can point our minds and our affections to Christ, just like God did command the Old Testament saints to remember the Passover meal, to remember how God passed over God's people in the land of Egypt as He brought about destruction. If you're not familiar with the Passover, we read about it in Exodus 12. Look at Exodus 12, verses 21 through 32. Exodus 12, verses 21 through 32. We read this, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs, according to your families, and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. So take some blood and apply it to the outside of the door and don't go out your door until morning. Verse 23, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, And when he sees the blood on this lintel and the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your house and smite you. He says, the Lord's going to walk through Israel and he's going to see the blood on the door and he's going to say, those are the chosen people of Israel. Those are my people. I will pass over that house. Hence the name, the Passover. Verse 24, And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as He promised, you shall observe this right. And the Jews understood they needed to remember the Passover. You shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel. When your children ask you this, this is what you should say, verse 27 says. He smote the Egyptians, but He spared our homes. Verse 28, then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was none home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, rise up. Get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel. Go and worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said and go and bless me also. So, they, they sprinkle the blood on the doorpost and God comes and he, he brings judgment to Egypt for holding His people as slaves and not letting them go as He commanded. And Egypt finally, after warning, after warning, after warning, finally says, enough, Go. Be free. Go and worship the Lord as you have said you would do. And we learn later that Egypt changed their mind, but God still rescued them. But in this Passover, God passed over His chosen people as they slaughtered this sacrificial lamb and sprinkled the blood on their doorposts. So Jerusalem at this time, and Jesus' triumphal entry, is full of people who had journeyed there to celebrate the Passover, to remember that God had rescued them 
from slavery in Egypt, that he had delivered them from bondage. So it's with that background understanding, I know that's a lot of background, but that's with that understanding that we pick up our text in Mark 11. And in verses 1-7 through we read this, As they approached Jerusalem, right, it's Passover time, Jesus is there. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, He sent two of His disciples. This was a deliberate act, by the way. He sent two of His disciples. He said, go. It wasn't like He stumbled across a donkey and said, oh, look, there's a donkey. He sent two of His disciples and said, go, get this donkey, do this. And He said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. A pure, undefiled donkey, a colt. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. They went away. They found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, why are you doing this? Untying the colt. They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it and he sat on it. This, folks, is a fulfillment of the prophecy spoken by Zechariah some 500 years earlier. This was well thought out. I think sometimes we think of the events of Holy Week almost as though Jesus is the victim of circumstance. This is well planned out, thought out. This is Jesus' plan. His plan. He set His eyes on Jerusalem. And He knew that He must go through this in order to rescue His people. It's a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, the donkey during David's reign was considered a royal animal. It wasn't until later that the horse became kind of the symbol of the royal animal upon which kings would ride. In David's time, a donkey, a king would ride on a donkey. And Jesus understood that. And He understood that by telling His disciples to go and get this donkey, that He was not only fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 in this prophecy, but He was also saying, I am a king like David. I am a descendant of David. I am the one who, David prom- who was promised to David. The one who was promised to the Jewish people. The one who would come and reign and rule in righteousness. Make no mistake about it. Jesus was saying, I am that King by riding in on that donkey. And in our text in Mark, Mark goes on to tell us in verse 8, and many spread their coats in the road and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. This brings to mind the picture of a celebration and a sign of adoration. Much like we might roll out a red carpet today But we get a clearer picture of what's really happening here from 1 Maccabees 13.51. Now, understand the 1 Maccabees, or the the books of 1 and 2 Maccabees, they're, they're, they're helpful in that we gain some historical understanding. They're not canonical, meaning they're not Scripture. They're not necessarily inspired by God. We don't use them the same way we look at the Scriptures. But there's some history that we can learn from the intertestamental period, the time between of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we read First and Second Maccabees so we can understand some history and things that had happened. And from that text, we read that the palm branches were a celebration. That when Simon Maccabeus delivered Jerusalem 150 years before Jesus, the victory was celebrated, the text says, 
with branches, palm branches, and musical instruments. That as Jerusalem was delivered before, they used palm branches as a means to celebrate. And thus the palm branches became a sign of Jewish nationalism and and freedom. Much like fireworks are a sign of American nationalism and freedom. You see fireworks and you think, God bless America. Praise God that we're free. They would have seen palm branches and they would have said, God bless Israel. Praise God for the freedom that He gives. And they laid these palm branches declaring freedom. Freedom for Jerusalem. Freedom for God's people. So Jesus enters the city declaring His kingship, riding on a donkey while people are spreading their coats on the ground and the palm branches on the ground. And then we read verses 9 and 10 of Mark 11. And this is where I want to focus most of our time in the sermon within a sermon, so to speak. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! Verse 9 is actually a quote, a direct quote from Psalm 118. And if you're familiar with the Passover celebration, as I mentioned earlier, you know that Psalm 118 has a place of significance. Probably the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament is Psalm 118. And it's part of the Egyptian Hallel. It's Psalms 113 through 118, which were sung during the Passover celebration. So the Jews, the Psalms are songs, right? And they would sing Psalms 113 through 118 during the Passover. They would sing them as a means of celebration, remembering God's deliverance from bondage. So the Psalm 118 would have naturally been on the Jews' minds during this time of Passover as Jesus was entering the city. We'll talk Thursday about how during the Monday Thursday meal, the disciples, they met together with Jesus, and when they left the upper room, they sang a song. It was actually Psalms, Psalms 113-118, through 118, and we'll look at Psalm 118 again. So we're going to look at Psalm 118, and thus begins our sermon within a sermon, because it helps us understand what it meant for the people to cry out, Hosanna, as Jesus entered Jerusalem. The psalm was most likely written by David. And in it, we don't know for sure, most likely written by David, and in it we see David sharing the testimony of God's grace in his life. However, as the psalm progresses, it's apparent that David is writing about someone far greater than him. David is writing not only about his own testimony, but he's writing about the coming Messiah. And we know from 1 Peter 1.11, and 11, that the prophets, they longed to know even the things they wrote about. They wrote about Jesus and they had somewhat of a picture of what they were saying, but it was, it was still fuzzy to them. They weren't sure exactly how these prophecies were going to be fulfilled, even as they wrote them themselves. And David writes about the coming Messiah, and he, he couldn't help but think, I'm sure, wow, the Messiah is coming, the promised one is coming, and he longed to look into these things, as First Peter says. So Psalm 118, starting at verse 1, first we see praise. We see praise. Verses 1-4, through Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say His His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say His loving kindness is everlasting. It says, give thanks to God for His character. He is good. He's a loving He's a loving God. His loving kindness, His hesed is the Hebrew word. His loving kindness for us is, it goes on forever. It's eternal. Then we see provision. 
We see God's provision. We see the text become much more personal. We see that the psalmist begins to write with me and my and I as the subject here. He says, from my distress, verse 5, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And the provision that was given was the provision of refuge. David writes this and he says, oh, I was in distress. But I'm not going to fear because it's better to take refuge in the Lord. Though man may try to kill me, though man may try to destroy me, my safety, my refuge comes from God. God has provided this for me. The second provision we see is God's strength. David goes on and he says, All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. Yes, they surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. He is my strength and song. And David says, even though everyone was against me, even though I could barely stand, the the Lord was my strength. He provided me with strength to stand up. Even though I was falling, the Lord helped me. So the Lord is my refuge. The Lord is my strength. And then the third provision we see is God was his salvation. In verses 15 through 21, he says, The sound of joyful shouting and, the salvation is of, and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die, but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The provision was the provision of salvation. God was David's salvation. And as you read these texts, I hope you see that there's so much more being talked about than just David here. You can see the person and ministry of Jesus Christ even in this text. From my distress I called upon the Lord. All the nations surrounded me. They pushed me violently. I will not die, but live. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. You can see these words applying to the Lord Jesus. And as David's penning these words, as he's uttering these words about how God has, has given him strength, how God has been a place of refuge, how God has saved him, the fever pitch gets more and more as David, it becomes clear to him and to us that he's talking about someone far greater than just him. David was merely a picture, he was a representation of Christ. That he was pointing to the coming Messiah, a greater king, one who is greater than David. Then we see, thirdly, in this Psalm 118, the the. Uh, text goes back to the plural us and our, and is not as personal as it once was with David. And we see this idea of petition and promise. Petition and promise. So we've had praise, we've had provision, and now we have petition and promise. 
We read this, starting at verse 21, and this is really where, uh, 22, and this is really where I want to focus. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, do save! The word there, or the phrase there, do save, is hoshnia na. And it means Hosanna. It's, it's, it's a, when you take the Greek word Hosanna, it was merely a transliteration of the Hebrew word, of the Hebrew phrase. And then we take it into English and we make it Hosanna. So it just means do save. It's the same word. Oh Lord, Hosanna is what he's saying. Do save, we beseech you. Oh Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Save us. And that's the petition. Then in verse 26, we see the promise. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. You see, not only is this a picture of a coming King, but it's also a promise of the Passover Lamb. Do save, David writes. We beseech you. Oh, Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. And then we have this promise immediately after that. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Bind the festival festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You see, Jesus is not only the coming King, but also our Passover Lamb. And as Jesus entered into Jerusalem and they yelled, Hosanna! They were quoting this text saying, Do save! Do save! But this text also, this phrase Hosanna, over time became moved from a, a shout of petition to a shout of praise. John Piper explains this. He says it well. He said something happened to that phrase, Hosanna. The meaning changed over the years. In the psalm, it was immediately followed by the exclamation, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The cry for help, Hoshnia, was answered almost before it came out of the psalmist's mouth. And over the centuries, it stopped becoming a cry for help in the ordinary language of the Jews, and it became a shout of hope and exultation. It used to mean, save please, but it gradually came to mean, salvation has come. So when the Jews were shouting, Hosanna, They were simultaneously shouting, save us as a petition and salvation has come claiming God's promise. When they shouted, Hosanna in the highest, they were saying, save us! Save us from heaven! While simultaneously saying, salvation has come down from heaven. And I pray that you can relate to this. I pray that you can relate to this. They understood that Jesus or we understand that Jesus came not just as the king who would save and build his kingdom immediately, but as the king who first had to save by becoming the Passover lamb. That he was the lamb who was slain. He was the one whose blood would be poured out for the remission of our sins. That's why in John 1, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. John understood. Here's our Passover lamb. He's coming. 1 Corinthians 5.7 actually refers to Jesus as the Passover 
lamb. He is our Passover lamb. So we need to receive Him as such. So when we cry out to God and say, save us, we can cry out with confidence also saying salvation has come. This isn't a hopeless cry. And that's what I want you to take away more than anything. That as we yell Hosanna, it is a cry for God to save us. But it's a cry that's rooted in a promise that He will because of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. Jesus set foot in that city and they cried, save us! Trusting in His promises that God was going to send a Messiah. And their ways were not God's ways. They certainly, many of the people didn't expect that God was going to bring about that saving the way He did. But praise God, His ways are not our ways. His plans are not ours. That His thoughts are higher. His ways are better. So the question is, how do we as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically, apply all of this to our lives? Well, number one, we need to praise Him for who He is. For He is good. Just as Psalm 118 starts with praising Him for His ever-loving kindness, we need to praise Him for His kindness, His goodness, His everlasting love as well. Number two, we need to look to Him to provide. Just as the psalmist, as David wrote, He is my provision. He is my refuge. He is my strength. He is my salvation. So also He is ours. We look to God as a place of safety. We look to God as our strength to endure, to stand up under trials. We look to God to ultimately rescue us and save us so that we can stand with David who says, I will not die, but I will live. And then thirdly, we lift up our petition. We lift up our petition. Save now. Lord, save now. But we do so with bold confidence that salvation has come. We cry out, Lord, save us, knowing that Jesus Christ has provided salvation for us. Our petition to God to save us becomes a song of praise. A song of praise whereby we say, thank you for saving us. Thank you for being our Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being both our Passover lamb and our King. So my encouragement to all of you is to receive Him as your Passover Lamb. Receive Him as the One who would pay the penalty for your sins. So that when God's righteousness comes, He passes over you as He passed over His people in the book of Exodus. That when He looks at you, He sees you through the blood of the perfect Lamb, Jesus Christ. And all He sees is Christ's righteousness. Receive Him as your Passover Lamb. And that is the only way to receive Him as King. And it necessitates that you do receive Him as King. If you receive Jesus as the One who died for your sins, then you will receive Him as King. You will submit your life to Him. There's no other choice. You can't say, Jesus, I want You as a Savior, but You're not my King. Instead, we receive Him as our Lamb, the Passover Lamb, the One who died for us, and we receive Him as King. So let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. God, I pray that You'd be with us, that You'd encourage us and bless us as we reflect on this text, as we reflect on the events leading into Holy Week, whereby Your Son set His face on Jerusalem, set His 
goal to enter into Jerusalem to be crucified and die to become the Passover lamb, the one whose blood would be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. God, I just pray and ask that you would be with us and that you would help us to lift up our voices, to cry out, Hosanna, save us, but also to do that with bold confidence, knowing that salvation has come. Not by our goodness, but by your grace, by your grace and your work alone through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.